This is Matt Ward of the Weigh In Boxing Blog and Podcast. Now you can support our show and your healthy lifestyle by shopping Bulletproof products. Bulletproof sells a variety of supplements, foods, coffee, and technologies that are the purest you can get anywhere. Shop Bulletproof products and support the Weigh In Boxing Blog and Podcast by visiting our website, theweighinpodcast.com. Coming at you from the One Stone Recording and Mastering Studio in New Brunswick, New Jersey, this is The Weigh In with your host, Matt Ward. Welcome to The Weigh In. My name is Matt Ward and I'm a boxing writer and historian from the greater Philadelphia area. Every two weeks, I will introduce you to people from the world of boxing, both past and present. This episode of The Weigh-In features my interview with former super welterweight boxing contender, Boyd Melson. Boyd currently serves as an officer in the United States Army Reserve and is the co-founder of Team Fight to Walk, an organization that was created to increase awareness of the importance of stem cell research for spinal cord injuries. As an amateur boxer, Boyd won the 48th World Military Boxing Championship gold medal in the 69-kilogram weight class, was a four-time United States Army champion, a three-time NCBA All-American boxer, a four-time West Point Brigade Open Boxing champion, and received the Colonel Marcus Award. Boyd fought professionally from 2010 to 2016 and won the WBC United States Super Welterweight title in 2015. Boyd retired with an impressive record of 15 wins, two losses, and one draw. Without further delay, here is the weigh-in with Boyd Melson. Please introduce yourself to my listeners. My name is Boyd Melson. I am a captain of the United States Army Reserve. I live in Brooklyn, I grew up in Brooklyn, and uh, I'm stationed at Fort Totten, Queens, or in the 361st Press Camp headquarters. I'm a retired professional boxer, graduated from West Point. I'm mixed with African-American and Caucasian, and I'm Jewish. And I, well, I'm a retired professional boxer, I won the WBC Junior Middleweight United States title. I've been donating a lot of, lots of money my entire life to try to help find entire adult life to help try to find a cure for a spinal cord injury. I'm now switched my, we're going to be having our FDA approval sometime this year to conduct this study trial here in New York and New Jersey. And then I've switched my attention right now towards helping try to battle, knock out this epi- the heroin epidemic, opiate addiction epidemic on Staten Island. And every Saturday since March, I've been hosting free boxing clinics at Nikki DeMarco's Boxing Gym on Staten Island. I'm having a meeting to throw to do a fundraiser for one of the Baptist churches on in the North Shore in the African American community. We're going to be doing a fundraiser, hopefully generate four to five thousand and donate it to them, doing it because it needs to be done. And uh, I'm running for United States Congress in that district. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Growing up, were you a fan of boxing? I was always a fan of contact. I guess that's the way I I didn't follow boxing, but I would watch. I remember the first fight I ever saw was the rematch, no, the first fight of Holyfield versus Riddick Bow. Oh, okay. That was my very first one, and I would only watch the big, so Riddick, that fight, and then I, Tyson versus 
Holyfield, Tyson versus McNeely. Those Tyson fights when he came out, and I guess I was that age, I was about 14, so I started to grow a little more into it. I didn't start watching professional boxing until after I graduated West Point. Oh, And okay. I had been boxing the whole time at West Point, but I didn't even watch pro boxing oh, while okay. I was there. You come from a military family in which both of your parents served in the Army. Was this your inspiration to apply to West Point? I wanted to be a doctor in the, in the Army once upon a time, mm -hmm. and my father explained first with West Point, what West Point itself is, what West Point itself is, and how you can get the government pay for you to go through med school, and then you serve as a career back, and almost a career, if you want to do a whole career, but your time you owe for going to med school is almost a career's worth between West Point and med school, but you can serve it back as an Army doc. So that was my, that was a big one, and the biggest one for West Point was that was my way, we grew up very middle class, mm -hmm. and that was my way of thanking my parents for giving me the best childhood I could have ever freaking asked for in my life. Awesome. Because awesome. they couldn't have afforded to send me to anywhere. They would have taken loans however they could have. And that was my way of saying thank you. And four days after high school, I reported for West Point R Day, reception day. Mm -hmm. Started basic training. And that was my way so you guys never have to worry about me again, really. Financially, I'm going to put myself through life here now. Very so that cool. was my biggest way of saying thank you to them. It was at, when 9-11 happened my junior year. That's when I felt the switch inside where I, that was the moment. I said, I'm, I need to be an officer. I need to help fight what's happening here. Before then, I was kind of going through the motions. Mm -hmm. I didn't internalize it. Everyone goes through theirs for different reasons and fighting, and that's when it shifted, when 9-11 happened. Awesome. What made you decide to join the boxing team at West Point? I was kind of pressured. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I took freshman boxing because it's mandatory for all males. Now I think both genders. And oh. then I signed up for intramurals. I signed up for basketball. And the upperclassmen forced me to they sign. They took scratch my name off and put it on the boxing on for the boxing team. <laughs> I was pissed because basketball is my favorite sport in the world. And then we ended up winning the school championship. And then there's an annual tournament every year that usually the boxing team, the intercollegiate team, sweeps. It's an open tournament for any cadet to sign up. I had some people kept court saying, you know, challenging me, we should sign up. And I said, no way, no way. And then finally I gave in because there's that thing in my personality to want to test it. And the captain of the boxing team was in my weight class. Mm -hmm. He was a senior. His name is Jason Northrup. He was a senior. He was very mean. <laughs> a freshman. He was so mean where the morning we were going to fight in morning formation, I heard he told all the, the fresh the plebes in his class, in his uh, company, make sure you come come up to watch the brigade open tonight so you can see me beat, uh, kick your plebe classmate's ass or something like that, they said. <laughs> and I knocked him out in the third round, and then they at, in front of the, half the school, and then they asked me to join the team. And I said, no effing way. I'm thinking then that Olympians are co coming from college. I didn't know, I didn't really think that maybe Mike Tyson wasn't, didn't go to college or something like oh, that. Oh, okay. So I'm thinking, you're crazy, I'm going to get killed. I go to this intercollegiately. <laughs> and but then that little tickle got in and of course I've learned it's not the, the elite level for but I did it and I ended up winning the collegiate national title my first year that was uh, my sophomore year first year on the team awesome so that's how it started at West Point what year did you graduate from West Point 2003 oh okay you've served in the regular army and army reserve for many years what is your current job in the reserve I'm a press I'm a public affairs officer Let's talk more about your experience as an amateur boxer. You defeated and lost to Keith Thurman in the amateurs. Please tell my listeners more about these fights. I beat Keith in the semis of the U.S. Championships in 2006. Mm -hmm. It was a it was a tiebreaker I won off of, and a draw, and then they do the raw, the, the second tier of scoring, how they go through, and I beat him. 
And it's funny because I was just speaking with him on Viber. Like the, uh, when he was in he was in Kathmandu, which got married, we were. I called him accidentally and pocket dialed him, uh, and he picked oh. up. <laughs> and I was like, he picked up. I hear somebody talking to him. I'm like, damn, Keith. And then uh, we were talking, and then he just brings up out of nowhere, because he's had surgery on his elbow. So I was talking about it, and I said, dude, when you come back to HSS, don't be, you better fucking call me so I can come see you. Yeah. And I think it's like in a week, so I'm going to hit him up, maybe today or tomorrow even. And then he goes, we're talking about something, and I'm talking about his career, and he's nervous because of his outside, and he's concerned. He's never had something like this, and he goes, I'm still salty that you got that win over me. Yeah. <laughs> so like that brought it up. And I was like, you're salty? And dude, when you hit me at the Olympic trials, there was a white light in my periphery for an hour that I kept trying to look at. And every time I would look, it just went further. I said, you put an earthquake in my head. So I don't feel bad for you one bit. Right, right. You killed, man. You killed me with that shot. Uh, that was probably the biggest, yeah, he's definitely the, the biggest name I, I beat, but then he beat me at the trials. I had a very arguable loss against Danny Jacobs. It was, it was very, very close in 2005 in the semis of the U.S. Championships. And mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I uh, put him on his butt in the fourth round. You know what? I'll say he beat me, but it was very close. And a lot of people watching said the other way, but I, was, I, I think he did beat me. Oh, okay. And it was very, very close. And, and of course, in, I'm going from my view in the ring, I, but I, I could see why they would have given it to him. He was a little more busy than I was at certain points, but who knows what the judges were seeing. So, I, uh, this guy DeAndre Lattimore, did you ever hear of him? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He lost to Corey Spinks for a world title before. Yep. I beat him. Uh, I lost in 2004 to this guy named Bakit Sarsegbaya from Kazakhstan. Bakit won the Olympic gold medal in 2008. Oh, yeah. In 2004, when I fought him, there were three judges, and the way it used to work at that time... The way it used to work at that time with the judges, it, yeah, the majority had a click on their button within a one-second window. So if there are five judges, three have to click. If they see a punch land for you, they click, and it has to, so they have to do a three out of five, so it's a check and balance, so one person just can't keep doing this. So there were three judges in that fight. It was an American judge, a Kazakh judge, and a Venezuelan judge. One judge had him win eight to seven, had him land eight and me seven. And you gotta get two out of three after right. the one second window. Another one had me win 16 to 15, so it's neck and neck. The last judge had him win 20 to four, and I ended up losing 11 to five. How is it neck and neck with two judges and 20 to four? So that means I had to get two out of three. I was probably just getting one out of three mm -hmm. often within a one-second window. If he would have gotten, I only needed six more points. Right, right. Out of, out of, if he would have 20 to 14, I would have got eight more from that one thing. And, and who could say I'd beat the Olympic gold medalist, but that's how that goes. And That's uh, crazy. I lost to Lara at the World Championships. I was on it right, uh, right, right. in China. So I've been there with some pretty, pretty big names. Yeah, it's an impressive list of fighters yeah. that you face in the amateur ranks. Thank Definitely. You. In 2008, you were an Olympic alternate behind Walter Waite, Demetrius Andrade. Please tell us more about this experience. Well, this is how it went. So, uh, Keith Thurman was the first alternate, and then he ended up turning pro. And Charles Hatley was the second, and he ended up getting in trouble. Oh. And then I was in camp for a tournament to go to compete in India, and I got the call. said, you're now our alternate, and I was ecstatic. And then while in camp and in competition, I retore my shoulder. 
So I came home in October, and we were supposed to go to England for a duel, USA versus England. They were taking just the alternates. Mm -hmm. And I kept putting off reporting to the training center. And my coach from the Army says, boy, you, LT, no cap it, that's on cap. You gotta make a choice, you can't do this. And I was thinking, man, this is November, the Olympics are next August. My arm's gonna fall off. I'm gonna be crippled for life, I think, if I try to push myself through this type of training with it torn. So I gave up my alternate slot after about a month and a half of being the alternate. Never actually was able to come and train with them as an alternate because I it was a week, a week after I got, I was in India when I got, I was in camp for India. And that was the World Military Games, that tournament. Oh, okay. And I gave it on up, and I, then I had Thank you. And uh, I ended up um, having surgery on it in January. Oh, okay. You turned professional in 2010. Over the course of your pro boxing career, you donated 100% of your purse money to Spinal Cord Research. What inspired you to do this? Well, two parts. So for two of the fights, I did not donate it to there. One fight, my second fight, my childhood best friend, uh, his father's Coast Guard, his, uh, he had son was battling uh, the uh, type of brain cancer named glioblastoma. He ended up losing his son at a few years old. Maybe their family was hurt and paying the bills. I gave him my purse to his, his family. So that was my second fight. My very last fight, I donated to a nonprofit named Big Vision that helps young adults live a sober life. Because that last fight was only the sole purpose was to co for coming out of retirement and getting my tail whooped because I had to lose 30 pounds in two months. I got whooped in that ring, oh. I, but I fell on my sword. I was so dehydrated, I was a mess. Mm -hmm. I had to lose 12 pounds the last day to make weight. Wow. Uh, 12 and a half, 12.6. Um, I donated it because it's to bring attention to the uh, uh, heroin or opiate epidemic going on on Staten Island right now. That was so two of the fights were not spinal cord research, but they still were donated in completion. And what's happened that I have years back, I had fallen in love with a girl who was paralyzed in a chair. Um, she broke her neck when she was 10 years old. And after about a year, was at the end of my junior year at West Point, mm -hmm. and I met, so I met her at a dance club. And then I promised her after a year, I met her in June 22nd of 02, and it was early May of 04 when I was at Field Artillery Basic Course at Fort Sill, which mm -hmm. I fucking hated. <laughs> they, uh, I promised her I'm never gonna give up on helping you walk again for the rest of my life. Cool. And then going to these open houses at Rutgers University that Dr. Wise Young holds. Now, Dr. Wise Young was one of Christopher Reeve's advisors. He's the chair of the WM Keck Center for Collaborative Neuroscience at Rutgers. His name is W-I-S-E, and then Young, spelled like Y-O-U-N-G. Mm -hmm. And 2001 Time Magazine named him America's Best in Spinal Cord Research. And he was trained med school here in the States at Stanford. So even though his name, he's, an, he's, he's uh, speaks English with an American accent and everything. So he, you know how it is in our medicine. They don't, we were very skeptical of anything that's done by anyone who's not American or if they don't, if it wasn't done in America. And he was trying to bring awareness. He was trying to bring a clinical, that clinical trial that he completed, that was published, that he completed in China to the US and they needed FDA approval and money raised. Oh. to fund it and that's when I decided I'm, I'm not a learned victim I don't have a learned helplessness and I can make a difference I can I know how I can raise some money I believe it and my very first purse was $1,500 and Kristen and I started our own nonprofit named Team Fight to Walk and now we've raised over $400,000 in seven years starting with that vision and, and me suffering a great deal <laughs> that's an amazing story Boyd thank you Who's your promoter as a professional fighter? Lou DiBella was my unofficial promoter. Oh, okay. Meaning uh, I never signed with him, but he put me on all his cards that he could. He let me speak in the ring, battered up, asking people to donate money. He gave me every opportunity that he could. He let me fight in Madison, uh, on a world championship undercard for Sergio Martinez in, in, uh, in uh, Atlantic City. Oh, yeah. 
he let me, he, I got to, he let, gave me the chance. He paid the sanctioning fee so I could fight for a title, even though I wasn't his fighter. And he's just done everything. Uh, one of my fights to Oscar, Oscar De, Hoyle, De La Hoya let me fight on two of his cards, and he matched my purse. Cool, so donated. Golden Boy promotions, right? Yeah, but I wasn't signed with them. Mm -hmm. But it, it allowed me to fight on the, on the Barclays Center. Awesome. Yeah, you had the opportunity to fight twice at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. As a Brooklyn native, what was it like for you to fight in front of your hometown fans? I, I think the coolest part wasn't even the fight because when I fought, I was the first fight, the first the first night, and then I was the third. So like the only people that were there were my people. Oh, really. okay. <laughs> so I'm used to fighting in front of the same people. But the coolest part was just taking the train to go there, knowing I'm going to Atlantic Avenue to go fight. Like, yeah. That was one stop away from where I went to high school. I went to Brooklyn Tech High School. So, oh, cool. Yeah, for, so that was just one, for two years, and then we moved up to Westchester. It also says I'm born in White Plain, yeah, like I said on, on uh, in the Wikipedia. But then uh, that was the coolest part, and going in there knowing where I was, like the center, and especially I cherish being home all the time. Mm -hmm. I cherish being in any of the boroughs uh, because I... This is where my life began, and being in the military, being away from everyone, that's probably the biggest reason I got off active duty. I, I got tired of missing events in my family and with my loved ones. Yeah. So being able to be right there where my whole childhood was, that was extraordinary. That's awesome. On May 8th, 2015, you fought Mike Ruiz for the WBC United States Super Welterweight title. Please tell my listeners more about this experience. I fought Mike Ruiz, and I hadn't fought in 15 months. Mm -hmm. I thought I was done. Um, I fought him May of 2015. In February of 2014, I suffered a, in the nerve injury. It's called a neuropraxia of my brachial plexus. Oh, wow. The brachial plexus, you have a right and a left one. It controls all the movement and feeling on your right arm. The brachial plexus, brachial means arm. Plexus means bundle, so it's a bundle of nerves and nerves. It's almost like I got a stinger. Like you get in the ring. Oh, yeah. The NFL. And the arm took me out for four months. And then I was supposed to fight at Madison Square Garden against Glenn Tapia in August. And ten, that's the year 2014. And 10 days before that, I retore my, my left shoulder. Oh. Three places. I remember reading about that. And so I thought I was done. And then I, I, the way I like to phrase it, I used to tell coach. I remember I can't say coach. I still got stuff in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so... That the end of 2014, I was named by the WBC as the WBC ambassador of peace, mm -hmm. and they flew me out to their convention, and I was on stage with with Mayweather and Holyfield and Bo and Oscar and Sugar Shane and and Duran and freaking um, Hearns and Hagler and the Springs, but like I couldn't believe it, and that's when they told me there that they would put up a belt up for me, and they worked through it and arranged for it. Now the biggest challenge of that whole thing was two few parts. My, I fought in May. My assistant coach died in January. Oh, wow. And in February, remember Anthony Mason from the Knicks? Yeah, he yeah. He was one of my best friends, so we lost him in February. I was by his bed for his last three weeks when he was in the ICU uh, in NYU. I, I missed maybe three days. I was every day with trying to practice and working full-time, which I did my whole career. Mm -hmm. So that was tough, uh, very, very tough. And then, I mean, because you got that, I grew up a diehard Knicks fan. You have, I'm there with one of my best friends and then the little kid inside of me is like this is Anthony Mason what the fuck's going on yeah right 
and the fight was on a Wednesday, but the fight ended up being on a Wednesday, mm-hmm. and then the weigh-ins were yeah, fight was on a Wednesday. Weigh-ins were on a Wednesday. The week before that, that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we had weapons qual at Fort Dix. Oh, okay. I hadn't made weight. I hadn't fought in 15 months. I hadn't made that weight in two years, and two and a half years. That Monday and Tuesday leading into that reserve weekend, I had I weighed out at 58 and a half. That Monday and Tuesday, so I'm good, right? I only got four and a half pounds, and I hadn't been that light. And then I have to leave Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's May, so it's hot. We're on the range, and I'm thirsty. I'm drinking. It sucks. They let me leave a night early, Saturday night, because they knew I was going to be competing, but mm-hmm. I didn't get to train Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I come home Saturday night, I'm 169 pounds. I have to be 154 on Wednesday. Oh, man. If you, everyone in the gym know that was around saw what I put myself through for those days, plastering it, the plastics, the Abilene, two workouts a day here in the gym doing everything. And I got down to 152 even, accidentally, because I thought my scale, I was afraid my scale was heavy. It was, I was almost in shock. Like the, if you, when I showed up to weigh-ins, the promoter thought I was strung out. <laughs> and my eyes were all bugged. Oh, yeah. I'm breathing heavy, I'm feeling nauseous and whatever. And that was the most, that's what I remember the most, not even the fight, what I had to put myself through those last three days of, I would come in, I put layers underneath, abilene, mm-hmm. plastic sweats, 20 minutes straight on the pads, a thousand punches on the bag right after, and then sit with the plastic gum in and spit and spit and spit. I did that two times a day, and my and not drink, and, and I had to, so I really was not drinking much. Well, maybe I had between those three days, three or four, maybe I had like three pounds of fluids, maybe 30, 48 ounces. I, wow. I had to get, because I, I had to sweat and sweat and sweat and sweat. So putting myself through that with being as, but, I remember I was, I, what made me happy is I was excited, I, man, I was in shape that I was able to do that. I also, that camp, I went out and I bought one of those vests that Andre Ward wears and I wore that thing oh, for yeah. like a 10 pound weight on. I wore that for a month and a half straight for everything I did here. And I, that's what helped with the conditioning because that fight I had, that was the best shape I had been in as a pro. And my legs had never been so strong. I, smol- I, I beat him pretty well. Uh, but it wasn't, I mean, I won the rounds convincingly, but I didn't dominate him or anything, but I won the rounds convincingly. Mike's right. very tough and he's got really good timing. Yeah, yeah. But I was so focused because my bucket list was, I, I always, since I, as a cadet, my you fight, we used to have four graded bouts at the end of the box of the course, and they're two one-minute rounds each. Because I remember after the first time I fought one, the one-minute round, I was in the corner and I was dead as a fresh. I never boxed, so I put everything I could. And I had to go, and that was only one minute, and I thought to myself, how do pros go 10 rounds? How do they do it? How? And that was always, I want to be able to say I did that one day. And then um, fighting for a belt was on the bucket list. The only other one that I was fighting on national TV, which I never got. I had four different opportunities on Showbox, and it was always at a time when I was injured or I was retired. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Wow. So that was that was magical. I had my, my father was in the corner. And my coach from West Point, Coach Chris Hart, retired full bird colonel, class of 91 graduate. Wow. He flew in to work my corner with That's him. Awesome. So he hadn't worked my corner since I was a cadet in 03. <laughs> yeah. So that was magical for me. It's a big night. Yeah. Who's the toughest opponent that you faced as a professional? Oh, Delenn Parsley was by far the toughest. In 2016, you retired from the fight game. What made you decide to stop boxing? Well, the whole reason I boxed, I turned pro, was to raise money in a way for this trial. Mm-hmm. And we're here, we're here. It's, 
any day now, the FDA needed some changes to be made. The doctor made the changes. He's waiting for the result, the data to be given back to him so he can resubmit it. And then they have to give their yes within 90 days because he made the changes they wanted. And that, uh, once I saw that that system went, I was like, the purpose is done. I didn't, I mean, I didn't make much money at all boxing and I, and it, I lost some of my jobs I've had. I had a, one, two of them I, I was let go from. One oh, wow. of them I just left because they weren't happy with how often I was out of the office, even though I was number, I got salesman of the year on my team for that year, <laughs> and they still let me go with that. Sales rep when I worked for J&J, and I had broke up with a girl I was with for three years, so it was very challenging with these things. Yeah. I made a lot of sacrifices. I mean, I'm going to be 36 in a few months. I have no children, no wife, and I'd like to have both. Mm -hmm. So... I just, I remember I went with Dr. Young to D.C. one time to help try to testify in front of Congress to get some FDA, to put pressure on the FDA to get approved for this. And I remember they started grilling him on certain quite things, and he's defending his research, and there's some special interest group members he's doing it too, and I'm looking back and forth between him and him and them, and it's said, you know, something's wrong here. Why does this world leader have to explain himself to people that don't understand a word he's saying, because it's all medical jargon, right. and they take that data and report it to people who won't, who won't understand a word they're hearing, and then they make decisions for our lives. And I said, like, a thing with a flash, and I'm sick and tired of always being the one asking and never being asked. And that's when I called my mother up from D.C. and afterwards, and I said, Mama, I gotta run for office. I got I don't know if I'm gonna like it. Um, I don't know if I want it. If I'm not, it might not, may not even be for me so much, but I believe I can help. And I was built, I know I was built to go through what needs to be done to help. So I have to try to do this. Awesome. Are you gonna have to go through like a primary when you went for Congress? Mm -hmm. That's June of next year. I think there are three or four other candidates right now. Wow, wow. Yeah. In 2013, you were inducted into the National Jewish Sports Oh, I got an update Fame. about that. Ready? Mm-hmm. I've been thinking I was inducted already. I'm not in the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame yet. Are you serious? This is how I learned this. I just got a letter in the mail two days ago saying you've been selected to get inducted into oh, the Jewish so Sports Hall of Fame April 29th. I got the Scholar Athlete of the Year Award in 05, but right. that didn't mean I was inducted. I thought that's what it meant. And then in 2013, they, they gave me another award, the Dick Steinberg Good Guy Award. award. Oh. I thought that meant I was inducted. <laughs> and I just got this two days ago in the mail, and it's going to be at the Lawrence Synagogue you know, in, in Long Island next awesome. um, April, April 29th. But I'm like, shit, man, I've been telling people this whole time I've been in Jewish <laughs> yeah, you know, I never knew who I was. You were, yeah. Well, congratulations, Thank boy. Thank you. <laughs> I guess we're breaking it here on the Way in Boston yeah. podcast. <laughs> Very cool. That's awesome, Thank though. Thank you. <laughs> you you talked a little bit earlier about some of the sports sports teams and, and sports that you were a fan of. Do you, oh, oh, do you yeah. have an all-time favorite Jewish sports athlete? Well, I guess I'll have to go with... I read his book... Um, Harry Harry Haft. Oh, okay. You ever heard of him? Yeah. Is it Taft? Hertzka's his nickname. He learned how to box. He began boxing in concentration camps. Oh, right, right, right. And he believed because he was, he at 16, he and his fiance they became engaged, and then the next week or the next day, they were everyone was rounded up, and his whole mission was to find her again. And he was doing well, and the, they had a boxing thing, and constantly he. They brought the European champion to him and he beat him. And then he turned pro in the US. And his whole vision was if I turn pro and I do well enough, my name will get out there and I'll find, and she'll be able to find me. He didn't even know if she was alive yet or not. That was his whole dream. Wow. And he ended up fighting Rocky Marciano. And 
he claims that some strongman came in and told him he needs to take a dive in that fight. And then so in the book, they were pre they were saying the commentators who were watching it and in the round that he gets stopped in, they say he's kicking his ass, he's kicking his ass, and then wait, it looked like it wasn't a good shot, but he's down. Something it like fell into the narrative. For any athlete, it's always the behind the sport. It's never the sport for me. For what I think the difference between the best and the great mm -hmm. is what you do in the sport versus outside the sport. Best is in, and the great makes the greatest is outside. So what he turned pro for, at least that's my favorite story. Right. And my grandparents on my father's side, on my mother's side, are Holocaust survivors. So, oh wow. In Poland, so it hit close. And from Poland, ha Harry Half was from was from Poland too. Very cool. We talked a lot about some of the causes and the nonprofit organizations that you're involved with. How can my listeners learn more about these causes and organizations? I'll give the websites for them. So there's one of them named Boxer Inc. Mm -hmm. That's a, a ship program using boxing. We go into inner city schools. I'm on the board for that. My, my dear brother Mustafa Abdullah is the founder. And it's, it's provides extra ship guidance. Exercise, extra ship. I say exercise mentorship. <laughs> extra ship. <laughs> Guided uh, and, uh, and discipline. If they get caught fighting, they're out. And oh. it's at boxerinc.nyc. And you see the cutest pictures of all little girls in the line with their hands out like that, and he's teaching them. Cool. So check that out there. Stopsoldiersuicide.org. That's for our 22 active um, reserve veterans plus one active duty member that dies. So 23 altogether takes their life every day. Um, I was the I was the keynote speaker. So at the three at Fort Hood at something called Third Corps, a corps is thousands and thousands of soldiers. I was there's keynotes. You know this. I'm talking right, right, right. At the last September of uh, for their suicide prevention proclamation. That's a big one. I care a lot about. I teamfighttowalk.com. That's our organization trying to find this cure for paralysis that we started through boxing. Uh, I'm on. This board in embedded chair recovery mm -hmm. uh, center is that so I think that's the ultimate work embedded chair recovery. It's a total body. I'm on the board for it. It's a total body for people workout equipment for people who are confined to a bed or in a wheelchair, and it's pretty cool. So if they just type into Google that, I'm on the board of a of a charter school named Summit Academy Charter School, and that's in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Oh. That school, all minorities. 39 seniors this past year, 39 graduated, 39 got into college. Wow. Ellen DeGeneres found out about this, gave each student a four-year scholarship to college. $1.6 million Ellen put up to That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm on there. I spoke at their graduation before. Um, I spoke. I gave awards out at their high school graduation. I spoke at, the, at their K-12, their middle school one. So that's a big one. I was a mentor for the Steve Harvey Youth Mentorship Camp. I wasn't... That's not an organization I'm, I'm on the board for, but I participated. They, that was a military detail. They've got about 20, 15 of us military in, or 16, and there was, for every two of us peer mentors, we had 20 boys, ages 11 through 18, without daddies in their lives. That's the requirement, 200 of them. Wow. 199 that showed up the year I did in 2016 were dark color skin. One kid was Asian, and that was a life-changing experience. We put those boys through hell. We were on them from 5 a.m. to 1 a.m in Georgia, in June, in that heat. Yeah, And yeah. these are kids without, have never had that type of discipline, teaching them how to march, teaching them um, how to drill, teaching them facial movements, military bearing, PT'd them every morning. We set up vignettes for what-if scenarios, try to get stuff to them. There was a STEM, you know, the whole of science. Yeah. Uh, we had to go through those centers, and 
they brought in some celebrities to give talks. That was a game changer in my life going through that experience. Yeah. And I got a HBO Real Sports covered my story before. They wanted, they were interested in doing a follow-up as soon as we get HBO, um, interested in doing it. I didn't say they would, but interested as soon as we get FDA approval and they want to know as soon as we do. Oh yeah, that was great. That was a really good episode of the show. Thank you. The one well, that you were on. This follow-up would be even greater because yeah. that's actually happening and people start walking in, in, in Manhattan that were paralyzed, the whole world finds out real yeah, quick. Yeah, yeah. So that was good. And that, in 2015, the Army Reserve Public Affairs Office made a mini documentary on my story, and it won the Department of Defense Video of the Year Award. And that's on YouTube, too. It's like the, the, the thumbnail is Dr. Wai Zhang, so it's an Asian doctor with a gray beard. And it says, Boyd Nelson still fighting for the greater good or something like that. It's 7 minutes, 11 seconds. There's a lot of stuff chronicled on there. Very cool. I'll make sure to uh, share all the so links much. to all those websites, organizations. Thank um, you, brother. They sound like great, noble causes. Very impressive. Thank you. <laughs> Boyd, it's always a pleasure to speak to a fellow soldier. Um, thank you very much thank for your you time. Thank you for your time and your service to our country, brother. Yeah, thank you for your service. I greatly appreciate you joining me this afternoon. Oh, I was supposed to get deployed this summer. Let me put this in here. Sure. I'm at public affairs school. Um, down at Fort Meade, mm -hmm. graduated on March 9th. I think it's March 3rd, I get a text, you've been involuntarily mobilized, you're gonna be going with, um, you're gonna be leaving in May with uh, SOCOM as a public affairs officer, special force, special ops. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm running for office, and I'm like, I can't believe this just happened at this time. Took about a day to swallow, started telling my family, and so between my mother, father, brother, sister, and myself, that's all five of us, we have 65 years of service to our armed forces. My sister was deployed twice, um, Saudi for uh, a year, and then Iraq for a year. My father has 26 years in. He was a medic. He was a corpsman for a, a, a SEAL, Navy SEAL team, and, for, and then Mama made him say, "It's either me or that." So he got out and went in the army for 20 years in. My sister, 17 years, she's a JAG officer, she's a major. My mother was a, a medic, well not a med, she's a nurse in the army. Then they both met, my mother and father, when they were stationed in, in Germany. And my brother was, my brother was a medic when he was in the reserve, when he was in the reserve going through ROTC at USC. And then he was commissioned in the public health service as an officer. Oh, wow. So the big thing right there, so I, I don't, I'm not a millionaire, I wish. When I was told this, the first thing that I said was, and I laughed, I said, man, I wish that were true. And then I said, where'd you get this from? They said, well, on Wikipedia, it says you're, you live in Manhattan. Said, you have to check I the sources. Laughing. I said, that's not, I didn't make that page. They said, well, you bet you need to go in and change it because people are starting to think that. I said, I don't need to go in and change anything. Let's not focus on that crap right now. It's too easily provable. I, I, it makes me think, guys, you, you have to be better than this because my life's been documented yeah. all along where I lived. Even the Real Sports came into my small butt apartment and filmed every step along the way. And you knuckleheads, you're looking to try to break me down already because you didn't grow up knowing me? Yeah. So that's what, with that. So they're looking to try to break me down. They're going off Wikipedia. I told them, According to Wikipedia, I'm 5'10". I wish I was 5'10". So I, told <laughs> I donate stem cell research, according to Wikipedia. I don't donate. I donate to spinal cord research. I was born in White Plains, New York, according to Wikipedia. I was not, I moved there going into 11th grade. Yeah. I was born in Orange County, California, when my father was stationed there 
and at 10 months old got signed to Fort Hamilton, and this is where I grew up in Brooklyn. Right, right. Until my last two years of high school, my father retired, my family saved up for their first house. First house I ever was able to live in for this Manhattan millionaire. First time I ever had my own room was 11th grade, and I had to share it with my brother. It's right, so the Manhattan millionaire part with this, it's documented everywhere. I mean, they're just nervous, and I get yeah. it. But don't go off Wikipedia, because the thing that this, the whole Democratic Party mad that Trump always says fake news, fake news, fake news. Well, look what you guys are doing now. Yeah. You're making crap up and spreading it that you have no idea about. You're being lazy because there's so much more information except that one site. It sounds like they're scared of you. In I the, agree in the with primary. you on this. I raised more money than any other Democrat there that's running on the island. Mm -hmm. I only had 40 days to get at it last quarter because our team started late. I ended up having to let go of my fundraising team. I looked because they raised $0.00 and they messed up a whole lot the first quarter. When I was gone coaching at All Army, I legally wasn't allowed to raise money. So that last quarter, I had 40 days and 56700 bucks came in. Now, Donovan's raised 220 something, but a lot of that's from the party coming in and blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's yeah. the current incumbent. But the second place guy, who, a Democrat on Staten Island, who was priding himself on how much he could raise, and maybe he will end up raising this much, He's because he's a, a bonds trader for Deutsche Bank. He went to MIT and for undergrad, then, then, um, then uh, University of Michigan for his MBA. And he's like, oh, I call people and ask for money all the time. I'll do this, no problem. And I'm thinking to myself, there's a lot of difference when you're, when you're asking people to spend money on something that they can make more money off of, like bonds, versus asking them to spend money to believe in you. He raised 35000 which is still good, but I raised 21 more. I did it in 40 days. He's been doing this whole life. And, and that now, individual sounds more like a Manhattan millionaire. Yeah, right? <laughs> so then, so, it's crazy. Yeah. I, uh, our video, our campaign video, just was, they finished filming it two days ago. The people that are making this video made the video for this guy, Randy Bryce, who's running against Paul Ryan. Randy Bryce is a cancer survivor, an Army veteran, iron worker for 20 years. His mother, who's a physician, also has uh, MS. He's uh, divorced, he has a son, that's his life. Mm -hmm. And the video they made on him, which I just love, because the last line he said, how about we tell Paul Ryan to come switch places with me? He comes works with the iron, in the iron, when I go to DC and help people or something like that. So that video raised 470K in under a month. Wow. And they think that our video they just made on me, that should be done at the end of the first week of August, because of, they, first they put me in this damn gym for an hour, for a whole day. I'm not in shape. I had to yell cut twice myself because I was dying <laughs> on that heavy bag trying to hit it. I'm like, all right, one more time. All right, one more time. I'm like, guys, I'm not in shape. And after a while, I said, man, running for Congress is hard work. <laughs> That's what I said. But they're gonna build it up as if it's um, it's like a trailer for a fight coming up. It's gonna crescendo. Oh, that's cool. And then three minutes long, like a round. Bill, Bill, and then the last one. And we spent a whole day in Staten Island. I had, because of what I've been doing with this opioid epidemic, I've, I've become tight with different people on the island in leadership <laughs> positions or, and just right, just to come on in and help. So they came in the video as well. And I told them, this is very important. I told everybody. And when I do all this stuff, nobody on the island that I've been to these meetings outside of my friend Pastor Joe, nobody on the island, and I've been doing this for a lot, knows that I'm running. No one, I've never brought up that I'm running for Congress when I've shown up for these. There's a group called TYSA, T-Y-S-A, Tackling Youth Substance Abuse. Mm -hmm. And I've been to two of their meetings with the leadership, the assistant DA and everything. I've never mentioned it once because that's not what I'm doing this for. And I told Joe this, Pastor Joe Severe, for the Heroes of Hope, and that's the only Christ-based recovery center on the island. I said, 
and God forbid I fall short on this race, you're not getting rid of me because I have addiction that's running my family. Yeah. When I was active duty, I was addicted to pain prescription meds because I've had multiple surgeries. Right, right. Two different times I had multiple surgeries. It took me seven years. It, it hurt my life significantly. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'm not finishing. We're going to knock this damn addiction out, whether I win or not. So that's the one is independent of the other. August 3rd, we got a day plan. We're going to try to get 10, 10, it's going to be somewhere between 10 and 15 kids on the island battling drug addiction. The best part that I've seen by putting, leading with my heart always is that the universe has conspired and people offer help back. So I had a friend, childhood friend, Danny Mishkin, call me up. He teaches, uh, he gives on Breezy Point throughout the summer, and he's going to do this for free for these kids. Guided meditation, team building, and swimming oh, that cool. morning. And then my other friend is an executive for the Yankees. He said, bring them on over. We'll give them a tour of Yankee Stadium. Awesome. And then my friend is retired uh, NBA um, basketball player Rex Chapman is his name if you play NBA jams he's on my yeah NBA. Rex Chapman yeah yeah so Rex is one of the I get mad when people talk about the greatest shooters like clutch shooters mm -hmm. I always mention Rex so it turned out that they always they had a uh, an article he came out about his big opiate epidemic uh, prescription med addiction he had because of multiple surgeries so then um, he said he put a whole big thing out about it my P my, my my PR buddy Matt Yanofsky got in touch with him over Facebook, he messaged back, he said, tell the Rainmaker to give me a call. Turns out, he's a huge boxing fan, he said, I know everything about it. I was like, you know about I couldn't, but anyway, um, we're flying him on in to spend the day with the kids when we go through that whole thing on for, on uh, Thursday, because I need them to see even NBA stars go through this. NBA stars want them to get better. The Yankees want them to get better. Mm -hmm. And then on the very next day, Friday, we're having a Legends vs. Heroes celebrity softball game at the New York Giants Stadium. I played in this two years ago, and this year they asked me to play, but then also to help organize it. So one team, all soldiers earn Purple Hearts. Good combat, the other team, celebrity athletes. Cool. And then they're going to have another game. Right before that, FDNY versus the veterans. All money raised goes to Purple Heart families. So that's going to be the very next day after. And then Saturday, I have to go up to my Boy, the Boy Scout camp, 10 Mile River. I'm an Eagle Scout, so I have to go up there. They asked me to be the keynote speaker. They're having their 90th anniversary, so I got a, a packed week, uh, end of the week oh, next week. Oh, so busy out. week, yeah. Man. Well, boy, we covered a variety of topics during this interview. Thank you very much for Thank your time. Thank you. Are you crazy, brother? Appreciate it. I'm telling you, man. I've learned through all this, it's as if a tree falls in the woods. It's you that helped people hear it, or it didn't happen to an extent. Awesome. And you sharing the story. I can't do it. I can do the greatest or the shittiest thing in the world, and depending on if you want to share it and then the spin you put on it. And right. that's what matters. And so I thank you because it's really everyone puts their raindrops into this storm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Floyd. Very well said. Give me a hug. Thanks. <laughs> you can learn more about Boyd Melson via a series of links to websites in the notes section of this episode. That does it for the first season of the Weigh In Boxing Podcast. The Weigh In will return in September with a new season of feature interviews. Until then, you can listen to the entire first season of the Weigh In podcast on both SoundCloud and iTunes. If you listen to the show on iTunes, please leave us a rating. This will help other listeners find the show. We will also continue to bring you bonus round interviews until the premiere of the second season of the Weigh In Boxing Podcast. If you would like to contact the Weigh In staff, you can reach us through social media and email. Our contact information is posted in the notes section of the episode. We love to hear from our listeners. 
The Way In is brought to you by One Stone Recording and Mastering in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Check out One Stone Recording and Mastering for all of your mixing and mastering needs. Go to onestonerecording.com slash thewayin and receive 10% off your first session. Special thanks to Boyd Melson and you, the listeners, for being a part of our 12th episode. The Way In Boxing blog and podcast is supported by the Bulletproof Affiliate Program. By shopping Bulletproof products, you are not only supporting our blog and podcast, but your healthy lifestyle. Shop Bulletproof products via the banners on thewayinpodcast.com. Catch you in September for Season 2 of The Way In. I'm Matt Ward. Peace out.